0: When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre Podcast. I'm glad you're here.
1: A reading from Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12 concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you brothers and sisters not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teachings allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of the lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is being... What is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do. To do so till it is taken out of the way and then the lawlessness one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroyed by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. The perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but delighted in wickedness. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. God. We are reading this text in Advent, um, Because it speaks of this day of the Lord, this last day, um, a day that is talked about a lot in the Bible, it's um, talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and is referred to in a lot of different ways. But it is the day where righteousness will be established, where the kingdom will be manifest in a way that is obvious to everyone. Um, Jesus talked about this a lot in his parables, that the kingdom is among us now. It's already happening in little ways that are visible and invisible. But this last day, this day of the Lord, is the full establishment of that righteous kingship of Jesus. Um, And yet, it's going to look different for every in every time and place that we see it mentioned in Scripture. It is mentioned in just about every Eucharistic prayer. One of the reasons I like Eucharistic Prayer B is that it says, in these last days. um, And you may not think of yourself as living in the last days. Um, We think of uh, that more of like a street preacher shouting that, repent, the kingdom is or repent, Jesus is coming. Um, And yet, Episcopalians do believe that. We might see it a little differently, and we might um, also acknowledge that there are metaphors functioning here. A metaphor is an illustration of something that happens invisibly and spiritually that um, is described as being an event, an actual event that you could watch with a video camera and record. But ultimately, all of human history is moving to this um, this, this uh, big moment at the end of the novel of history. For Paul, that is what's happening. For Jesus, that is what's happening. And for the writers of the Old Testament and the writer of the book of Revelation, John, who writes down this vision, is probably the one that fleshes this out a little more fully of what it looks like when the righteous kingdom of God is established. But there's these other characters in the drama that show up in Second Thessalonians that also show up in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, and also show up in the book of Revelation, and even um, show up in the teachings of Jesus when he talked about the last day or the day of the Lord. Um He's begging his brothers and sisters about this. Um, He's begging them. Again, we see Paul's authority as an apostle, not as some sort of um, pope-like figure who pontificates. That's where the word pontificate comes from. A pronouncement from one man who has been given all the authority to just say stuff and everybody has to obey him. And that's not how the Pope's authority works either. Um, Talk to any Catholic about the Pope's authority and they'll give you like 10 different answers on how much authority the Pope has. Um, And this is the issue in the English Reformation for our spiritual parents, the Anglicans, most notably Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cramner and some others um, there in the 16th century who... Said that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, couldn't just say stuff and we all had to obey him, that um, we actually need a fuller account of our faith from multiple sources. But um, Paul, the Apostle, who has all this authority in the world, he's an Apostle. Again, he's begging them to listen to him. Um, That is how the authority of the church works it is a begging. Someone described preaching as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Um, If you spend any time with people that are experiencing homelessness, our homeless neighbors at the Trinity Center, which uh, many of you have um, helped out there, uh, homeless neighbors tell each other where the food is. They tell each other where the meals are. They tell each other where they can safely sleep. They share this information as Extremely poor people, people that don't possess homes, houses, apartments, the kind of shelter that um, at a bare minimum allows people to have a certain quality of life. They don't even have that. And yet they share the information freely about where to get the stuff they need to sustain life. And that is what preaching and teaching and apostolic authority is. It is one homeless neighbor telling another homeless neighbor where to find Food, Um, and Paul is doing that. He is not. um, He is not coming down as sort of the first pope of Christianity. Whenever I hear that framing that Jesus was this nice guy who taught everybody about love, and Paul came along and turned it into a religion, um, I I always realize that people probably haven't read the Bible that would say such a thing. Paul if you add up all the verses about love and kindness and affection, Paul is more loving than Jesus. He said more affectionate and loving things than even Jesus did um, while he was here on this earth in his teaching. But Paul is begging them, begging them um, to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or word or by letter. Um, as if the day of the Lord is already here. You can see in this early fledgling church, there's already misinformation circling around. There's already controversy. There has never been a church that agreed on everything. From the beginning of church history, Christians have disagreed on major things and gotten mad about it and done some terrible things to each other because of it. There's never been one pure church that had everything right. Um, We often hark back to that early church time and say, well, the early church believed this. The early church taught this. Um, None of that's ever true. There was always um, what is now scholars would call competing Christianities. Um, I just call it normal church life that everyone believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that through his death and resurrection, They could find new life and hope for the future. And every Christian believed that, um, at least the ones that I would consider Christians believe that. But on these other things of like when the day of the Lord was happening and what it would look like, um, Christians have always disagreed on that kind of stuff. And we do today. Um, And Paul is begging them to not be deceived, to not be tricked by somebody who comes along and tells them exactly what's going to happen and then uses that information to coerce them into a kind of cult-like following. Um, as much as I hate, um, as much as I hate being um, wrong, <laughs> and I sometimes am, I do appreciate when people challenge me and ask me questions about what I'm saying. Um, and Paul is no different than that. He wants people to know that. The work that he did among them and teaching them um, wasn't for nothing. He wanted to keep them from getting tricked by people who had come along and tell them exactly when they thought the day of the Lord that it had already been there and so that they ought to live in some sort of utopian-like existence. Christianity is not a utopian religion. Um, all over the United States, you can visit the ruins of of utopian communities. One of my favorites is New Harmony, Indiana. It's actually where Paul Tillich's grave is in Southern Indiana. And um, it was started by people who um, wanted to build a utopian community that was free from all the um, hustle and bustle and rat race of life. And it was apocalyptic and that they felt like the kingdom of God had already been established here on Earth, and they were going to live that out. And various communities have done that over the years. Some of them are polygamous in early Mormonism. Some of them um, don't believe in any kind of procreation, um, like I believe the Shaker community um, in New York. Um, others, um, others have you know all sorts of uh, ways of differentiating themselves from the community around them, uh, and yet all of them. Um, suffer from this one thing in that Christianity is meant to be lived in the real world. Our Christianity is supposed to be lived like it's like everybody else lives. Um, This idea of the Christian who lives in the real world, who keeps the gospel, the good news in their heart and shares that with others, that there is hope for our future, that God does love us deeply that Jesus died and rose again. And that good news that lives in us, that gives us hope and keeps us going, doesn't detach us from the real world that we live in. We participate in the world as Christians. We get involved in the government as much as we can, um, or as much as we are able to. We serve in the military. We serve our community in various ways. We teach in schools. We go to school. Um, We try to um, be part of Our communities that we live in, not be uh, separate from them um, in in that way, because we believe that ultimately um, it is in the living of life in love that we are most like Jesus who lived among us as one of us. God became human um, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ so that we can be more fully human. So uh, Paul here is... Is warning them, and he's scared, and he's begging them to not get tricked. We are so easily tricked. One of the um, one of the things that people learn in recovery, in recovery communities, um, whether that's AA or other, um, especially relating to substance use disorders and other. Um, when we're honest about our own. Uh, ways of coping with stress and life and all those things, is the the possibility of self-deception. In fact, we are the easiest person to trick ourselves. We are usually the easiest person to trick, um, to, to tell ourselves that um, what is real is not real, um, that, that we somehow can live outside um, of reality. There's that great meme, you may have seen it, um, it's from some TV show that I've never seen, but, um, it basically is like a four panel cartoon. And the first panel says, um, you know, we, we should try this. We should try this. And then the other, the other person says, yeah, but everybody that tried it failed. Everybody that tried it, um, had these consequences. Um, and then the last line is, yeah, but that won't happen to us. <laughs> um, we're different. Uh, I, I messed up the joke and I messed up the meme, but you get the idea that um, we often think that we are the exception, um, and and that's where Paul is saying, like, um, don't get tricked by this um, by these teachers that come along and tell you that the day of the Lord is already here. Um, this is not the full manifestation of the kingdom of God, no matter how good life gets. That is a kind of prosperity gospel that says that everything, that your life better be 100% good and you better have all the wealth and riches and success that you um, deserve and need and you should have it right now, right here in this life and if you don't, God hasn't blessed you. Um, That is not the teachings of, of Christianity. Jesus taught that it is through his crucifixion that he redeems the world. It is through his suffering that the good heart and love of God is made manifest in the world. It is not through some sort of giant cash machine emptying from heaven that makes the world better. It is through love. It is through sacrifice. It is through suffering. It is through the broken parts of our lives that God's love is most manifest to the world. And so these teachers who are coming along for the Thessalonians and saying, it's already here, it's already happened. Paul's making it very clear that, um, that don't get tricked. There are things that have to happen. This lawless one, or man of sin, as this is somehow translated, um, has to come first. He is the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or objects of worship, he takes his seat in the temple of God and declares himself to be God. This is very clearly a reference to a number of historical events that have happened in the life of the people of God. Um, We see references to this in the book of Daniel, of Nebuchadnezzar um, and others, or Belshazzar Belshazzar, um, using the sacred temple um, ritual cups, which were meant to hold the blood of the covenant for the, the sacrifices, to use those in their drunken orgies. And in that moment, God judges them. They're doing this in the temple. This is a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the Greek Seleucid king who invades Jerusalem before the, long before the birth of Jesus and is driven out by the Maccabees, but he defiles the temple. He sets himself up in the temple as God. Um, this is also a reference to the, the things that happen in the book of Revelation, where this person who um, turns morality on its head and says that, um, that lawlessness is the law. Um, really, we can, I think we can see this best in comic books if you follow the Batman series, I think the one who embodies this sort of reverse um, reverse morality is the Joker, who says that um, ultimately the truth lies in the absurd, in, the, in violence. That is where the truth is. You can see it maybe in Harry Potter too, that um, there is no good or evil, only power and those willing to take it. You can see it in the writings of Nietzsche, and the um, project of the Third Reich in Germany that only power is right and that we will set ourselves up as the examples of the perfect humanity and everybody else will have to be like us in order to be truly human. Um, These ideologies that come along every so often are ungodly and they're always driven by a very powerful personality who um, is empowered, as Paul says, by the devil. I think he is talking about a cycle of history where people in desperate times look to one person to save them. And this one person always sets himself up as some kind of God um, and always inhabits the sacred spaces of the community. Um, For Americans, um, we have... We don't have sacred spaces in America. We made it very clear in the founding of our country that we would not have one temple, one church that everybody had to worship at, that everybody was free to do, for the most part, what they wanted, Um, and that certainly wasn't true completely. There was a lot of um, disagreement about that um, and all sorts of other controversies, but our, our temple is our politics. It is where we embody our spirituality, our sense of meaning. And so um, we look to our leaders often um, unreasonably so to somehow save us. And in that looking to them to save us, not just to govern us and lead us properly, but to save us, um, we often buy into the lie that these early Christians are following into, that somehow they will usher in this golden age. Um, Christians have never been that hopeful about politics. We participate in government. And in America, in a democracy, that means we vote and we run for office and we encourage each other to do that. And we help each other um, get elected and those sorts of things to um, make that clear. But we do not put our ultimate hope in our political system. Um, That hope belongs to God because this um, the mystery of lawlessness is at work and Jesus will destroy it with the breath of his mouth so these men it says here um, there are probably women in that manifest this way too um, but Paul is focusing on the men the man of sin here or the lawless one that they will be destroyed with the breath of the mouth of God. Just as God breathed into Adam the breath of life and humans became a living soul, um, so the breath of Jesus, which is his imparting of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Gospel of John, will destroy the words that come out of this man of sin's mouth, the lawless man. Um, and that's why we read the Gospel every Sunday. We read the Gospel every Sunday to remind us of what reality really is. We need a reminder of the reality of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus taught and lived among us. And I don't know about you. I used to work as a teenager on a loading dock and it was a really wicked place to work for a number of reasons. Um, my supervisor, um, the foreman at the dock was a wicked man. And I I don't know how else to describe, describe that. Um, and I don't mean just because, like, you know, I, in a lot of ways, he um, embodied uh, lies, deception, uh, crudeness, violence, a lot of things that um, that trickled down into the organization and was kind of like a poison um, that it got into all of us. And so I remember as a teenager going home and just reading the Bible at night and, it, and just to try to like get some of that out of my system. I don't know if you do that too. When we are sort of oversaturated by wickedness and greed and people that are trying to take everything from everybody all the time. Sometimes we need that antidote of scripture, uh, the words of Jesus to wash that um, through our lives. Because that's what the gospel reminds us of. That the power that is working in this world is the power of love. It is not the power of this man of sin or lawlessness who tricks people. Jesus will never trick you. Um, That is not Jesus. Jesus always made it really clear that following him was going to be really hard and that it was going to be really difficult and that there will be times where we say, Lord, take this cup away from me. I don't want it. I don't think I can handle it. I don't think I can bear it. And nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Jesus lived that in his own life, and he made it clear his disciples and followers would experience that too. There will be many signs, lying wonders, powers that will try to deceive us, but stick to the good news of Jesus. Stick to the good news of the story of death, burial, and resurrection. That is the pattern of life. If you're in the death part, um, it's really hard. And dying to self. Blessings, Kara. Um, and if you're in the resurrection part, that's the time to celebrate. And we celebrate with you. Um, but that is um, how we avoid the deception of this world that tells us that through the powers and signs and wonders and even prosperity, that somehow that is what it is to follow. Um, Jesus and to be part of this kingdom. But Jesus reminds us, and Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers, that that's a trick. Don't fall for any tricks today. Amen. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, As we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen december 8th the church remembers richard baxter richard baxter um, a pastor and writer who died in 1691. Uh, Richard Baxter was born in Shropshire in 1615 and educated at local schools. He was ordained in 1638 and spent his early years as a schoolmaster and curate. And um, when the, the English Civil War broke out, the English Civil War was quite different from the American Civil War. It pitted the um, king Charles the First, an Anglican king, against the Parliament, who established their own army. Eventually, that was called the New Model Army. It was really the first modern army um, that every army today in the world is now modeled after. Um, and so, this conflict that broke out all across. Uh, England and Great Britain, uh, it's called different things. The War of the Three Kingdoms, it's sometimes called, we call it the English Civil War, um, broke out and he became a chaplain to the parliamentary side of things. You can see where his sympathies lie, laid in the side of Parliament, which was Presbyterian. Um, It was not, or Baptist, we might call it. It was not. the kind of Anglicanism with bishops and priests and deacons that was more Catholic that the um, king and his cohorts ascribed to, 1642. So he became a Puritan, which is the origins of the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Congregationalist Church here in the United States. Um, When we read about these events from this side of the pond from America, we remember that um, Americans were very much in favor of the English Civil War and very much on the Parliament side in many ways. Um, So you can see the origins of America um, and our system of government, our revolution, coming out of the English Civil War um, that happens there in the life of Richard Baxter. Um, But he became aligned with this Puritan cause serving as an army chaplain Um, But then realized that they were going too far and became a moderate and stood against some of the destructiveness and excessive destructiveness of Oliver Cromwell's legions. Oliver Cromwell uh, then goes on a crusade against the Irish, who are Catholics for the most part, and wreaks havoc and destruction there. Um, So Oliver Cromwell is often held up as a good guy, in history because he's pro-democracy in many ways, but then he sets himself up as king um, or lord protector that becomes a hereditary thing. His son takes that. So nowadays, history has sort of judged Oliver Cromwell as the bad guy in the story. Of course, the English Civil War ends with the execution of Charles I, and the reason he is executed is he refuses to do away with the bishops of the Anglican Church. He refuses to um, give in to the demands to destroy the church that he is the uh, protector of as the king. Anyway, in 1647, Baxter becomes the vicar of Kidderminster, and it's there that his pastoral ministry thrived. In the midst of all these huge political movements, Baxter is a faithful pastor, In his community, he sets up new patterns for parish uh, catechesis for for teaching. He uh, increases the size of the parish buildings to welcome larger numbers coming to hear him preach, and he pioneered a a style of pastoral ministry that has enriched the Anglican tradition to this day. Baxter provides his own narrative of his pastoral work in his book, *The Reformed Pastor*, which is a really good book to read, um, especially for clergy. Um, It's very practical, and it's very much about the daily life of church in the 1600s, which is a lot like church life in the 2020s. Um, When the episcopacy, or when the bishops, are reestablished in England after the Civil War, Charles II, who comes back from Europe to restore the monarchy to England, um, offers Baxter an appointment to be uh, the Bishop of Hereford, And although more moderate than many, Baxter's Puritan convictions kept him from accepting the post, he decides not to become a bishop, um, and that meant that he could no longer be a priest in the Church of England. So he becomes a Baptist or Puritan or nonconformist. There's a number of names for these folks. Um, He is remembered in the history of the Book of Common Prayer, for the role he played at the Savoy Conference in 1661. There he argued for the changes that needed to be made to the next prayer book from the vantage point of the Puritans, the so-called exceptions. And the resulting 1662 Book of Common Prayer shows these marks of Baxter's agenda, but his strong um, advocacy for the Puritan position certainly influenced the shape of the revisions. The 1662 prayer book is the one that the American um, colonists used here in America. After the English Civil War, a number of the people that um, lose when Charles II comes back to England come to America, and they are the ones that foment the American Revolution. In fact, several of the jurors um, in Parliament who sat on the jury that convicted Charles I of treason and had him executed escaped to America and died here in America um, in some ways as heroes for killing a king. So you can see the times that they lived in were very tumultuous. Um, If you think our politics are tumultuous now, um, they were in those days as well. From 1662 until his death in 1691, Baxter resided around London and the reestablishment of the monarchy and the state episcopy of the church unfortunately made Baxter um, remembered for his Puritan posture and he became a target of unkindness and petty revenge. Um, a profound example of Baxter's deep joy and piety can be found in our hymnal, in the words of the hymn, Ye Holy Angels Bright, number 625 in our hymnal. So Richard Baxter was part of the Church of England, although he had to leave it because of his own convictions. But again, shows us that the Christian life is best lived um, in community, in a church community that cares for each other. And that's what he did um, with his life. And it's a really good way to live your life in this kind of uh, community of love. Thanks, most gracious God for the devoted witness of Richard Baxter, who out of love for thee followed his conscience at at cost to himself, and at all times rejoiced to sing thy praises in word and deed. And we pray that our lives, like his, may be well tuned to sing the songs of love, and all our days be filled with the praise of Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: Second Thessalonians chapter two thirteen three through five. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sacrificing work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you this through our gospel that, our, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers and sisters stand firm and hold fast to the teachings be passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. May your Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us and the message of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have every we have confidence in the Lord, and you are doing well, and what you're doing will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perfect perseverance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.